0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Today's sermon from our Good Friday service is by Father Kevin Miller and is part three of our Holy Week 2016 series. In your bulletin, there's an amazing sermon title. At least it was until three weeks ago when I changed the direction of this message, and so now it has little or no relevance, so you can just put that down. And in its place, would you pick up the name tag, if it's not already on you, pick it up, the one that you saw when you came in, and hold it there in your hand, and take a look at it. Hello, my name is... And imagine that you've been invited to a very unusual gathering tonight, and that what you've just been handed is not a name tag, it is a shame tag. So rather than write your name on here, what I want you to imagine writing is what is that thing that you have done you hope no one ever finds out? Because if that were to come out, if that were known You would not be able to look at the person you were talking to about it. You would look down at the floor and your cheeks would burn. You would feel shame. What is that thing? I want you to think about it right now as though it's written there on that tag. Got it? All right, then take that shame tag and put it on yourself. Pat it down. Wear it. That feeling you have right now is shame. Now, in church, we talk a lot about guilt, as we need to. And guilt is very difficult. But as difficult as guilt is, for many people today, it pales in comparison to the impact of shame. Some of you know the work of Brene Brown, the research professor at the University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work. She calls herself a shame researcher. And here's how she defines shame. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Did you get that? Shame is the intensely painful feeling, is it not? Of believing we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Who can bear with that? Now, shame and guilt often go together, but I think I can distinguish them for you this way. Imagine, if you would, this sentence I did that horrible thing. I did that horrible thing, that sentence. In that sentence, guilt comes over here and points at the word thing and says, that was wrong. That action, that attitude, that was wrong. That was against your conscience. It was against the moral law of the holy God. But shame goes over to this end of the sentence, and it points to the word I. And it says it isn't just that you had a bad day and, and you did something wrong. There's something wrong with you, shame says. You are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Who can bear with that? So we do feel shame when we sin and, and we know our guilt. But we don't have to do anything wrong to get shame. To believe you are flawed, you simply need someone in a position whose opinion you care about to tell you you're flawed. Maybe it was that last-minute layup you blew and your dad said, you're a loser. And you didn't want to deal with that anymore and you left the team and he called you a quitter. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe your mom was like, why can't you be more like your sister? You're like, what is it that's with me? Why why doesn't she like me? You're a whiner. Or something much, much worse. Maybe it was that aunt or the grandma at the family reunion who said, you know, you'd be so pretty if you just lost some weight. And these stick to us. And we don't know how to get them off. Now, friends, if there was ever a time... When you and I need to know what to do with shame, it is today. Because today we live in a world in which everyone we meet is carrying a video camera. And is connected to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And so today, the entire world can put a shame tag on us. Two years ago for Christmas, Justine Sacco was flying home to be with her family. Justine worked in New York, she's 30 years old, and she was the public relations officer for a company called IAC Corp, which is the parent company of OkCupid and some other internet sites that you may know. And her family lives in South Africa, so she was headed there. And she was tired and traveling makes you squirrely, and so she began to tweet out some snarky little tweets about her travels. The first one was before her flight from New York took off, and she tweeted this. "Weird German, dude. You're in first class. It's 2014. Get some deodorant. Then she landed in London, and she was there at Heathrow, and she tweeted this out. Chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. I thought that was funny. Come on. OK. <laughs> Sorry, you Brits. All right, now, and then. While she was in London, before she got on her 11-hour flight to Cape Town, she tweeted out this, Going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Oops. Then she got on the flight. Twitter blew up. Her company, seeing this and trying to control the Twitter storm, tweeted out this is an outrageous, offensive comment And the employee in question is unreachable on a long flight. So she lands, Justine lands in Cape Town, and as she's taxiing in, she turns on her phone, and it's a text from a friend she has not talked to since high school. And the text is this, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Justine's like, what? What am I going through? And then her phone rings, and she picks it up, and it's her best friend, Heather. And Heather's like, oh, my gosh. You're the number one worldwide trend on Twitter right now. There's an entire campaign, hashtag, Has Justine Landed Yet? There are people going to the airport to take a photo of you getting off this flight. GoGo, the people who provide in-flight wireless, tweeted out, the next time you plan to tweet something stupid before you get on a flight, make sure it's a go go flight. <laughs> CC, Justine Sacco. And sure enough, that day IAC Corp issued a statement that they and Ms. Sacco had parted ways. Justine had meant it as an ironic comment on her own white privilege. She says she. She apologized profusely. She says she cried out her body weight in tears in the first 24 hours. But the shame had taken over. And shame, when it takes over, is difficult to deal with. We uh, have a member here at RES who wrote something very profound about her own journey recently. She bravely wrote about her own experience with eating and trying to lose weight, and she wrote this. Shame uses every mistake you make and every vulnerable moment to tell you over and over that you are not important, not good enough, and not worthy. And what do we do with that? Well, we all have our own approaches, don't we? One approach is that we try to hide it we isolate from people, we disconnect, we don't have a real relationship with people, and so we kind of are going around like this. Hey, how you doing? How you doing, Kev? I'm fine. I'm, I'm totally fine. Really, because you seem kind of awkward and a little strained. No, really, this is totally good. But when we come out of our hiding, the shame tag is still there. Or maybe we medicate, you know, we're like, if I could just do that thing just for a few minutes, uh, that addictive behavior, whatever it is that just helps me forget for a moment how this shame makes me feel, maybe that would do it. But then we sober up and the shame tag is still there. Or maybe we attack ourselves. It might, it might be cutting, it might be self-destructive behavior, but maybe it's just self-loathing and self-criticism. We stand outside ourselves, we look back at ourselves and say, that was stupid, I don't know why I did that. Well, what's wrong with me? When am I going to get my act together? And we just kind of beat up ourselves. But when we stop beating because we're exhausted, we look down and the shame tag is still there. Or we, we uh, try to make up for it. If you have a religious temperament, as I do, then this one might be popular. You, you, you go, I'm, I'm going to make it up. Uh, so I, I'm going to pray a little more. I'm going to go to church a little more. And, and this was what the ancient Hebrews did. In, in, in Hebrews 10, it tells us, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter whether you, you try to hide it, you attack yourself, you try to medicate, you try to make up for it, you try to do good stuff. Nothing takes away the shame tag. And so what has arisen in, in our lives is this that in your human heart, and my human heart, and every person in the, in the world is crying out, is there anywhere I could go and I could get this off of me? Is there anything I could do to get rid of the shame and, and, and replace it with honor? That's what I want. Where can I go for that? And that cry reached the heart of God, and God did something we would never have expected. It was so radical. It was so counter anything we could have conceived. We'd never have come up with it on our own. And here's what God did He said, I'll take it. He stepped down into our world as a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus came with no guilt, no sin, nothing to repent of, nothing. And he stepped into our world totally clean, totally open, with arms wide in love, so that he had the maximum space to take your shame and mine. And say, I'll take that. I've been reading through the life of Jesus lately through the lens of shame. And you could almost describe his life as man drowned by shame. I I just sort of did a quick summary for tonight of the life of Jesus Christ as told through ten points of shame, the ten shamings of Jesus Christ. Let me give those to you. Number ten, the shame of being thought illegitimate. Jesus grew up around arched eyebrows, the little smirk, the wink, the knowing comments, the whispers behind his back. Yeah, we know about you. We know about your mom. We know about that. Number nine, the shame of growing up poor in a place where nobody expected anything from, where nobody wanted to live. It was said of the town Jesus grew up in, can anything good come out of there? We have places like that in our own country, don't we? In our own region where we go, can anything good come out of there? That burned over kind of place? And you go, well, that doesn't sound so bad. How shameful can that be? Well, it doesn't sound bad unless you've grown up in a place like that. I know a man who's actually been very successful in his adult life. But you don't have to talk to him very long before he will tell you about what it was like to grow up dirt poor, hard scrabble, finally get together just enough pennies and nickels to get into the state college and have to work his way through waiting on the rich kids in the frat houses, and then walk home to a cold attic apartment. The shame of that cuts deep. When everything you have is somewhat outdated, half broken, And it's what you have. Number eight, and this happened to Jesus so many times of being thought and told by people, you're demonic. You're demonic. Jesus said to the crowds one day in John 7 Not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And they said to him, you're demon-possessed. Number seven, the shame of your family coming to get you while you're in public because they think you're insane and you're an embarrassment to them. Mark 3 tells us that. It says that Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. Number six, the shame of your friends and neighbors hating you so much that they try to kill you. No, this is not, they, this happened, Luke 4. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, meaning what Jesus was telling them and challenging them about. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Number five, the shame of having one of your closest friends whom you recruited, whom you've spent every day of your life with for three years, turn his back on you and sell you out. I looked up how much the 30 pieces of silver that Jesus, Judas got for betraying Jesus might be worth today. And the scholars estimate that it might be around $4,000. So Judas was like, okay, I keep my friendship with him and my loyalty to him, or I sell him out and I get $4,000. i am taking the money. The shame of that How about number four, the shame of being arrested? Some of you know what this is like, but imagine having your name out there on the web, arrested in the stupid mug photo that looks terrible. I used to work with a guy, and he left our organization, and a few years later, his name was all over the papers and all over the websites for an arrest. And I tried to reach out to him on Facebook, and he unfriended me because he had so much shame around it. He just he couldn't he couldn't handle He could, couldn't handle the relationship with somebody that he'd known. Number three. This one is one I'd never thought about until this message. But to see if this makes sense to you. You get arrested, you know you've done nothing wrong, and you're just like, that's okay, because my friends are gonna stand up for me. That's okay because there's gonna be a popular uprising. This is not gonna go down like this. There's going to be a protest. There's there's going to be letters. There's going to be, like, people picketing outside. Isaiah 53 tells us this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Nobody. Nobody. There was no hashtag Jewish Lives Matter. There was no hashtag Free Our Rabbi. You know why? Because everybody thought you're getting what you deserve. Shame of that. Number two, the shame of being spit on. Jesus knew this was coming. He told his disciples it's coming. He said... The son of man will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. I don't know about you, I'd rather be hit than spit on. Is there anything that would show more contempt than that? He got that from the religious leaders at his trial. He got it from the soldiers. He got that. And number one, the shame of being killed by crucifixion. You know, the Romans had a lot of ways of killing people. Some of them quick and relatively painless, like the sword, beheading. That's not what they chose for Jesus. They gave him a form of death that is the most humiliating, shameful, degrading form of death they could imagine and they could engineer. We're going to strip you naked, and then we're going to hang you up for people to walk by and make fun of you. That's what we're going to do to you, the shame. Now, you say to yourself, after the, a catalog of shame that is mind-numbing and, and really too profound to take in, you go, why? Why would Jesus do that? And the only answer that makes any sense is the Bible's answer, Hebrews says this for the joy set before him Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame what would be so profoundly joy giving and life giving to Jesus that he would actually treat the shame of that as as not even compared to to that obviously doing the father's will whom he loved above all things I think it was also the joy of seeing the light in your eyes and the light in my eyes when he came and said, I'll take that shame. You don't have to carry it anymore. It's been so heavy for you. I don't want you to have it. Just give it to me. I'll take it. I want to see you go free. I want to see you have honor. Now, Jesus Christ rose from that shameful death and he is alive. And he is here in the hearts and lives of his Christian followers. And he's here tonight in this place right now. And so Jesus comes to you and me and every single person And he extends his hand. He looks at that shame tag and he says, Can I have that? And he's so patient. He never forces, never intrudes, just invites. And he waits and he says, Can I have that? Maybe for you, you go... (laughs) Jesus "I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. My, my sin is so monstrous. What I've done is like, oh, "Oh, I can't forgive myself. I don't know how you would forgive myself. How could you do that?" And Jesus says, "I forgave the people who did all that to me. I forgive you. Can I have that? Or maybe you're saying to Jesus tonight, but I am a loser. I am a whiner. That is true of me. All those things those people said, they're actually really true. And Jesus comes to you and he says, that's not your real name. You don't have to live with that false name any longer. I know your true name and it's so true of you, and it's so precious that only you and I know it. To the person who overcomes, I'm going to give a name that no one else will know except you and me, and we'll share it together because it's what's really true about you. So can I have that, that false name? You don't need that anymore. You go, well, yeah, but that's not my situation. My situation is, I, my sin is repetitive. It's a cycle. It's just over and over. I repent, I sin, I repent, I sin. Why, how would Jesus forgive that? And he says, I'm the one who said, don't just forgive seven times. Forgive 70 times seven. So your sinning could never outlast my forgiving. Can I have that? Maybe for you, it's this. You go, you know what? I hate myself. I do. I don't know what Jesus is going to do about that. He's going to say, you can't bear that. But I can And then Jesus takes all of my shame and all of your shame and he climbs the hill of the skull. And he goes and stretches out his arms of love on the hard wood of the cross and says, you are free. I'll take the shame. Because what will bring me the greatest joy is if you...